Hi friends. Welcome to the Auto Family Living Room where I am sitting in the peace and quiet of a post bedtime house and I'm thinking about our gospel story for this week and I'm thinking about how I'm doing and how our community is doing and our world and I'm thinking about what God might um, be wanting to say to us through this story at this time. And I think we have to start with the season of the church year in which we are in, because that is such a big clue to us um, as to how we are to understand the story. We are in a church season right now that's called Epiphany. It is a shortish season. It comes right after Christmas. And in church world, when we think of Epiphany, we usually think of the story of the three wise men and the star. That is the story that we read every year on the festival day of Epiphany. But in the medieval Christian tradition, it was taught that there are actually four epiphanies that are part of the extended Christmas story. So there's the revelation to the shepherds, to the magi, the baptism of Jesus, which we had last week, and oddly, this story. This was always considered the fourth epiphany. Now, I think, you know, an epiphany is like a revelation, right? Like a discovery, um, some kind of new understanding. So those first three stories make a lot of sense. The angels announce good news to the shepherd. The star reveals Jesus to the magi. God's voice speaks over Jesus in his baptism and tells us that he's God's child and he's beloved. Uh, but this story, this one's a little bit different. And at first glance, it doesn't quite seem to fit the epiphany mold. No one is announcing anything. There's no big uh, discovery that happens. But the reason that it has long been recognized as the fourth epiphany is not because it is the first thing that Jesus does, but because this story is a microcosm of everything Jesus does and, and is still doing for us. And is written that way intentionally, of course, as kind of a symbol of everything Jesus is to us. And we know this primarily because of how it starts. So do you remember what were those first three words? Oh, four words, <laughs> first four words. Um, on the third day. And of course, they partly mean that literally in the storyline. We are on the third day of Jesus' ministry. The first day he's baptized, the second day he calls disciples, and now, now it's the third day. Um, but when we hear that phrase, what do we automatically think about? What do they want us to think about? Easter, right? Easter, resurrection. On the third day, he rises again. This is an intentional shout out to resurrection, intentional uh, pointing to where the story is going. So for those disciples, they've heard who Jesus is at his baptism. They've said that they're in. And then the first thing that this new group does together, apparently, is that they go to a party, which I love it, right? How great is that? And what happens at this party? Well, the hosts of the party fail at like the first and most rudimentary rule of hospitality. They run out of drinks. Here's what I want to know, though. What happens between verse 4 and verse 5? Because at the end of verse 4, Jesus has just snapped at his mom. And despite what commentators might say to try and smooth that over, that term he uses, woman, it's not polite. It is not a term of respect. It is a dismissive term. The Greek connotates distancing. Like, woman, that is not my problem. It is not my time. So that's the end of verse four, but then by verse five, Jesus' mother, who, by the way, interestingly, she is never named, not anywhere in the Gospel of John, but by verse five, Jesus' mother, she isn't even bothering to talk to him anymore. She just turns to the servants and says, 
Do whatever he tells you. Doesn't it seem like a piece is missing? What happened in the middle there? Now, if you are raising a toddler in this day and age, as I am, you are taught that in order to minimize power struggles and maximize cooperation, instead of giving kids orders, you're supposed to ask a question or make an observation and then let them work it out for themselves. Like, hmm, I see those shoes on the floor there. I wonder where they're supposed to be. Or it can even just be as simple as shoes. And then you're not supposed to stick around. They say like, don't hover, don't warn, don't cajole, don't threaten. You just walk away and you expect your child will do the right thing and those shoes will be in their cubby by the time you return. This is like classic modern parenting. So is that what happened between verse four and five? Like what did Jesus' mother do? Did the two of them get into a screaming match that was like so seemingly unholy it was cut out of the gospels? Or did she give him the look, you know, that some moms can do so well that just begets no pushback? Or did she turn on her heel, leave the room, and just expect her child to do the right thing? Whatever she does, it works, right? However reluctantly, Jesus does kick into action, give some orders, make some wine. And now let's do some quick math, shall we? So there are five ounces in a standard pour. There are 128 ounces in a gallon. There are 30 gallons in each of those um, cisterns that they're talking about, and there were six of them. So that means Jesus made 23,040 ounces of wine. So that is <laughs> 4,608 glasses of wine. Or even if you just want to go by bottles, right? Five glasses in a bottle. So Jesus just made 921 bottles of wine. So this first sign, this story, this is Jesus in a nutshell. This is the gospel. On the third day, wine for everyone. Not just some wine, a lot of wine. Not just adequate wine, the best wine. And not for some like righteous, well-deserved, tug-at-your-heartstrings good cause, but for some poor schmuck who didn't have it together enough to buy the right amount of alcohol for their party. So friends, procrastinators, penny pinchers, poor planners, or people who are just plain poor, rejoice. God's best blessings come to those who did not or could not adequately prepare for what was coming. Well, raise your hand if you felt adequately prepared for this moment in time that we are living through together right now. No one, right? No one. I was just looking back um, in the journal that I write to Alice, and on April 2nd, 2020, I wrote, Dear Alice, everything has been shut down for 15 days because of a disease called COVID, and they say this might last up to eight weeks. Can you even imagine? <laughs> well, eight weeks. We're almost two years in. And not only is it not over yet, it's like worse than ever. And I can't speak for all of you, but for me, friends, I am exhausted. I'm exhausted. 
Do you want to know how I know that I'm exhausted? Here's how I know. Here's the level of like over it that I've been at lately. The other day, totally normal day, sitting around, watching the girls play, waiting for it to be bedtime, when suddenly I realized that I need to use the restroom. And guess what my reaction was? My honest reaction to that was this. Seriously? On top of everything else, I also have to haul this meat sack of a body off to the bathroom and pee? How long, oh Lord? Like I genuinely felt like needing to use the toilet was the most unreasonable, unfair, over the top, like almost impossible demand on my time and energy. <laughs> that is where a lot of us are at right now. We are so pushed to the limit of what we can handle that things that used to be totally routine can feel totally overwhelming. My favorite tweet in December that I saw was someone who said, oh boy, ever spill your morning coffee and realize the thread you are hanging on by is actually quite thin? Got like 26,000 reshares. For many of us, the thread we are hanging on by is quite thin. We are empty. We are empty. The wine is gone, whether from COVID or staff shortages or just the current state of our lives. We have run dry. Well, friends, if that is you, if any of you are empty right now, please hear this good news. The place where our self-sufficiency ends is the place God's grace begins. The place where our self-sufficiency ends is the place where God's grace begins. The current state of our world has revealed for many of us what has actually always been true. We are not in control. We are not on top of things. We do not have what it takes. This life is more than anyone can handle on their own. And that is not only okay, it is intentional and it is a blessing. Friends, self-sufficiency is an illusion Self-help and self-care, these are all lies the world tells us just to try and get us to push harder and work longer and buy more stuff, and it works. But God's dream for us is so different. It's so different. God designed us to be insufficient and incomplete so that we could find completion with each other and with God. So we might be drawn into something bigger than ourselves, drawn to live beyond ourselves. Now, to be honest, I don't quite know what to do with Jesus' brusqueness in this story. Unless it's there to remind us that God can use even grumpy people to bring forth great blessings. But I do know that this story is so Jesus and it's so God. Because the moment we run out is the moment God steps in. Not with a little, but with a lot. Not because we deserve it, but because abundant blessing is who God is and we can trust that. So friends, if you are exhausted, if the thread you are hanging by is actually quite thin, if you are running on empty, let this story remind you empty is not such a bad place to be. If you do not feel sufficient to the task at hand, remember that God's best blessings come to those who are unprepared. For the place where our self-sufficiency ends is the place where God's grace begins. And so we don't, 
we don't need to hover. We don't need to cajole or persuade or warn or threaten. Just turn your face forward and expect a blessing. Sit right where you are right now, expecting a blessing. Close your eyes and listen to the next hymn, expecting a blessing. Eat and drink your communion today, expecting a blessing. And whenever you leave, whatever you go to next, go to it, expecting a blessing for you will be filled. Amen. Hey, eh? amen.